Welcome to the Competitive 40K Podcast, brought to you by Vanguard Tactics, 40K Codex Analysis, List Building, Strategy Development, Game Theory, Mentoring. Our mission, to help you become a better player and to raise the level of the game both on and off the tabletop. Here's your host, Stephen Box. Hey, and welcome back to the Competitive 40K Podcast. And today, I'm joined with the regular... Eddie Stanton, how you doing, Eddie? Good cheers, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing really, really well, thanks. Yeah. Uh, good to be back on the podcast because it's been a couple of weeks. It has, yeah. Life Real got, life got in the way, yeah. Life got busy. Um, obviously, the last episode was the sisters and uh, did a really good deep dive into those. So if you haven't checked that podcast out, go and listen to that one. But today we've got a very, very special guest. James Otero from Siege Studios, the CEO and founder. How you doing, James? Very well, thank you. Yeah, very, very well. It's been, we've been trying to set this interview up for ages, haven't we, James? It's been quite a while. Yeah. Our, uh, our, our, we've just both been very, very busy. <laughs> well, you are in particular a very busy man. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, James, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I'm not great yet. So there's a start. Um, but, uh, but no, um, I've been in the hobby for, well, since I was nine years old. Um, 35 now. So it's quite some time. I had the gap like everybody. Um, I was involved in music and stuff during that period, uh, just in bands and things. Uh, but then after all that sort of finished, I came back to it. And uh, and yeah, I've been obviously in painting and gaming for, for many, many years since, since I was 22, 23, I think. So yeah, so quite some time. Nice. So did you have like that sort of regular gap, you know, like I did, which was uni, for me, it was sport, but for you, it was bands. I'm interested to find out a little bit more about that. What sort of bands were you playing for? So it was like hardcore bands and like metalcore bands. Um, so yeah, so I was in two signed bands that sort of toured all over Europe, UK, um, uh, went to sort of like uh, all well, all over Europe pretty much. And then um, and we had the opportunity to go to like the States and Australia, but it just didn't come full through just because of some issues and bits and bobs. You know, it's like members just not being committed enough and things like that. So so yeah, it just, yeah, that all fell apart as, as those kind of things do when you rely on five people, um, with like girlfriends and stuff getting involved and all that kind of rubbish. So, so yeah. So after all that finished, I just came back and went in the loft, found my toy soldiers and cracked on. So. <laughs> and is it always been the painting side of you or is it the gaming originally? Which, which out of the two did you sort of, um, obviously sway more towards? Um, up until the last year or so, I'd probably say a bit of everything. Like I'm super passionate about all aspects of of it, both the gaming and also the painting. But um, but I'd probably say with recent events over the last eighteen months or so, not just obviously because we can't go and game, but I think I valued the time that I've had to paint miniatures more than perhaps time that I would spend gaming personally. Like I know I, I love gaming, I love the competitive side of things, but I think when when push comes to shove and you've got to make a decision between the two, um, I think for me, I, I got into this because of painting and I think that's that's probably the route that I'll always go down. But I'll, I'll still be I'll still be around for, for a game now and again. I've got plenty of plenty of mates that like it. So I'll probably probably still do get the odd game now and again. Um, maybe not as heavily into sort of tournaments and things as I used to be. Well, I think that was the first time I met you, James, wasn't it? It was two, yeah. 2018, I believe. Yeah. At a Warhammer World event. And yep. you were With running... You- Go on. With, with your with your pop up and shoot uh, dark reapers, if I remember correctly. Yeah, a Jane Czar, yeah. the list. Yeah, <laughs> and you had an incredibly painted Iron Warriors army. Yeah, yeah, that was my Iron Warriors army. Yeah, um, yeah, three defilers, a uh, few decimators, I believe, if memory serves right. A couple of havoc squads, a couple of lords, um, and then yeah, a dark. Uh, uh, someone a darker bayonet. Um, I think that was it, pretty much. I think I oh, want some cultists. Yeah, as you got to the obligatory chaos cultists. And I remember you had these things that I think it was a Forge World model that when I killed the crew, the guns just stayed on the table, kept moving oh, forward. Oh, yeah, that was me. it. Yeah, the yeah the um, the rapier batteries, but they're the uh, they're the the um, dark dark forge. Oh, I can't remember what they're called, but they were the Forge World ones. Where when you kill the crew, the gun takes over and it just has to advance, has to charge and has to shoot if Amazing. possible. So yeah. So, uh, so yeah, lots of forge world shenanigans. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I remember that was an awesome game and that was like round five, wasn't it? In the kind of like the final. Round five, uh, uh, last it was, I can't remember what characters you had, Jane Jar and you, it was, yeah, you were, Jane Jar against my Lord, I think was how the game finished. And that was pretty much most of the stuff that was on the table other than your Dark Reapers, which were yeah. hidden beneath behind the building. <laughs> Sounds like an ultimate <laughs> showdown. Yeah. I had yeah. a, a sermon as well. That was it, yeah. 
at yeah. my serum and I'm yeah so um, but no that was an awesome that in and obviously I think we kind of hit it off from them really didn't we and yeah, we've obviously was, kept in touch good, since yeah. yeah it was really really good um and I'm really obviously I've seen a few of the pictures that you guys have sent me over for my uh Farsight Enclave army correct yes yeah they are amazing being, they have been worked on as at present yep <laughs> And it looks absolutely unbelievable. So I can't wait to get that on the table. I know there's a lot of hype for it as well. I keep getting messages like, Steve, when are we going to get the Farsight on the channel? Um, you know, and I think people are really excited to see that. So yeah, I'm really interested in that. Yeah, it's good. It's coming. It is coming. Sounds really good. I mean, I know that both you and Steven share a bit of a love for a particular faction, don't you? That's correct. Yeah. Blood I mean, there is, yeah. I, I, uh, yeah. Blood angels are the, the one and only my first true love. Don't tell my missus. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, they are. Yeah, absolute. Um, I've always been the biggest fanboy ever. Like, are they your uh, first army? Yeah. Yeah. Second edition box set. Got the box. Loved the, the artwork on the front. Um, and, uh, and then obviously after just thinking, well, I want to paint them like that because they're red and red's my favorite color. I was like, right, I'll really start reading. Bought the Angels of Death book about a week later after getting second edition box and uh, never looked back. So, so yeah. And you recently, I remember you, you've been telling me about this, uh, this new product you were launching at the time. Yeah. This is months and months ago. Months ago. Yeah. Yeah. And you kept showing me this sneak peek of a Dante, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yeah. <laughs> sounds yeah. spicy. Go on. Yeah. So, um, so, so custom services, uh, is a brand within the brand of siege. Uh, it's a completely bespoke character creation service, like one of one piece models with full certificate of, of authenticity. So we don't repeat them or create them ever the same ever again. And, uh, to, to launch it, we, we made five models, just f five characters. Uh, one of them's for Joe, one of my, my operations manager in the office. And, uh, he chose Ezekiel, um, and to get like his own personal Ezekiel model, like in Primark, Primaris version. Uh, we done Carandra, Sergeant Centurius, the old Legion of the Damned Sergeant, um, plus also, uh, as I said, Carandrus, Dante, obviously, and then uh, and then the Space Wolf from the second edition, uh, third edition Codex artwork. So, um, so we chose some really iconic models that, that I wanted as part of my collection, uh, but just obviously new versions of them. Uh, and obviously, I was going to get Dante made in a Primaris version. Um, there's a bit of artwork in in the office, uh, like just like the front cover of the Guy Haley Dante novel. That's just like one of my favorite bits of artwork. And I kind of wanted the next next scene in that artwork as if he's landed on the rock that he's landing on and in turn to face the next enemy that he's going to go after um, from the devastation of Baal. And um, and yeah, so I just I got, I got Ben from Custom Services to basically create a one-off unique Dante version for me um, that, uh, that, yeah, just I was teasing Steve with photos of it as it was being painted. <laughs> I bet he was jealous. I want it. You want it, don't you? <laughs> It sounds like an incredible centerpiece. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I just, yeah, I wanted it so badly and, um, and yeah, just had a lot of fun painting it. So, so yeah. So where's your background then, James, in terms of your, um, I'm, I'm really, really interested to find out, like, what was it that made you, and I'm sure most people are fam very familiar with Siege Studios as your work is just phenomenal and the reputation that goes along with it. So what was the point where you were obviously back in the hobby you were obviously collecting, painting. Was it, did you start entering painting competitions um, and going down that route? And yeah, I'm, I'm interested to find out more about how the, the business of Siege kind of came into fruition, really. So I, uh, so yeah, well, yeah, um, I, I painted bits and bobs of friends during sixth form uh, when I was younger. Um, I, I've always painted or painted previous to, to models and things like my parents used to sit me out in the garden during summer and sort of like spring and, and when I was a kid, like really young, sort of four, two, three, four, five, and just with blank rolls of wallpaper, I used to paint in sort of back my back garden during the summer months and stuff. And um, granddad got me into FX kits at six years old. Um, and uh, that's how kind of I got into models and then 40K models were at night when I was nine. But the business side of it, um, so I, I've, I've been a recruitment consultant for 11 years um, uh, before I went full-time with Siege. And um and I'd returned from touring and stuff, obviously, to my recruitment job. Um, and uh, I just basically started doing uh, some YouTube videos, like some like kit bash diaries and things just on YouTube, just like showing off what I was working on as like, my, my personal hobby. Uh, and that obviously included painting models. A couple of guys approached me saying, look, we do this kind of commission thing. Um, you know, we'd love you to sort of paint for us. So I, I started doing the odd bit and bob for them. And um Obviously, while working full-time in recruitment, I'm day in, day out. It's super regimented and super sort of loads of red tape and procedures and all this kind of stuff. And 
the way that that experience with working those chaps that approached me was it was just so far from that and and I'm I just didn't like that it wasn't very sort of business-like or regimented or wasn't professional enough for me in my mind um so I just decided to start Siege uh, as like a side hustle to my recruitment job and uh and yeah it kind of went a bit nuts we day from mini wargaming i think it was commented on one of my sort of videos and said oh i like love the painting blah blah so that's how i found mini wargaming and then matt put up a video saying look we're looking for commission painters uh, to paint some models for us get in touch so i dropped matt an email with some photos of my, of my painting and um and then um what happened was i painted a load of models for their um i think they're called sentinels of the forge which is their like uh is their like mini wargaming space marine chapter the green and yellow one Painted a load of models for that, thought nothing of it, sent them across to, to Canada. And then two two weeks or so later, um, I was at an event uh, with, I don't know if you know Tristan Whitehead, he's one of my good good friends. Um, basically, I was at an event, at a Battle Brothers event with him, and my phone was just going mental. And I was like, what is going on? And um, suffice to say, over one weekend, I woke up on, like, on the Sunday morning with near 1,500 emails from people saying, I've seen a video on Mini Wargaming, can you paint something for me? Here's what I want, blah, blah, blah. So I just got metric tons of inquiries through their video they put up for me wow um and around the same sort of time i was like entering competitions i was entering golden demon i was entering different sort of uh sort of painting competitions uh that's uh, i've been to europe for a few and, and different things and um and uh and yeah like a couple of my friends that were, were close to me obviously in the, in the competition scene just i said look this has happened i've got a load of inquiries and a load of potential commissions and obviously done all the email bits and bobs that i had done back then um got a load of jobs on and then and then yeah like that's kind of the birth of siege essentially um that's why i kind of where it started i always whenever i see matt adepticon or whatever, I, say, I, I always say to dave in person whenever we speak you know um that, you know without that initial nasa sized rocket boost um we just wouldn't be the company we are today i don't think and uh and yeah that's kind of how it started and and then it's just turned into absolute monster um amazing yeah, uh, I'm I'm super humbled by. It. I know, obviously, you said like, oh, yeah, there's plenty of people out there that make the no siege or the reputation, or whatever. But I always try and remain as grounded and as humble as possible. Like, um, being in recruitment, I think, um, it just taught me a lot about how businesses should be run as opposed to how they run. Um, I used to go into a lot of companies and see bosses of companies that didn't know anything about the business, but just sat in their office, door closed, and didn't talk to any of the staff, and just expected the cogs to turn with no understanding of what the business actually has uh, or does. Um, like I'm first in, last out every day. Um, I, I totally realised that Siege wouldn't be the company that it is if it wasn't for the nearly six, 70 people that work for it now. Um, and I value every single one of them. Like, if if I didn't have them, like, yes, 50% of it is what I had done in the early days and all the paperwork and processes and procedures and all the working operations and all that kind of stuff that I did. But I'd have to have paintbrushes glued to every single digit. Uh, in my mouth, in between my toes to paint all the models we have to paint now. And I still wouldn't get it all done on top of doing all the emails and everything. So 50% of my business is everybody that's in the company and I hugely value them. And I would never want anyone to ever think that uh, that that I'm the sort of owner or I hate the B word as in boss, I hate it. Like I am the owner and the leader in the company. I'm not do this, do this, do this, do this with no understanding of what the actual job entails. I think that's really important. Yeah. And I think that helps kind of keep the culture and then, and, within siege is what it is it sounds like you really hit the ground running and i think that the the communication aspect that you touched on there is something that siege does amazingly well like, i think that's probably what sets you apart like you communicating obviously internally and from your expertise but also with clients yeah i've genuinely been like really really impressed with yeah just like the little update pictures the the form that i filled out in terms of what i wanted where in you know, it just, it felt like, you know, nothing was too much trouble. And I know also some of the things that you and I have uh, worked on together when you've asked me for some help, James, on some list stuff for some of the clients as yeah. well. I, I know you go above and beyond even by going, oh, Steve, um, you know, what do you think is going to be good? Could you give one of my like clients some advice? Like that's that sort of next level service. So um, I think it's yeah. awesome. And I really resonate to what you said there about like with me, I'm first in, first out, you know, first in, last out. And, um, yeah, you know, like you, I want to lead from the front, you know, I want to, and then I think when you do that, you really inspire people to, you know, get the best out of them, which is, um, credit to you, James, for that. And it's really actually fascinating to find out more about that, uh, creation of Siege. So thanks so much for sharing that. So where are you now then in terms of 
Um, how many people do you say you've got like artists working for you around? Are they globally? Are they just based in the UK? No, it's, it's all UK. So we, are we, we, unfortunately we get asked this all the time. Like, Oh, I live here, like in this country. Do you want to start up a like, part of siege in this country or whatever? No, like, like quite, equivocally no like uh it'll only be uk um obviously we've got internal team members that work at the office obviously the paint and also we've obviously got the office staff that work at the office um ideally in an ideal world i'd have everybody in the office if they wanted to be and are able to be um that would be the best environment i think to have everybody centralized in one place i'd love that um realistically especially during the last 18 months you know um it, it's just not feasible at the moment um you know but there are plans afoot to, to make things a bit easier for lots of people in the company but um but yeah, everyone's everyone's in the UK. So there's 60, nearly, well, I say just over 60 painters that work for the business. And then there's uh, nearly 10 staff in the office. Um, so, so yeah, and the, the, the really up until two and a half years ago, it was just me in the office. So only in the last two and a half years have we had such a dramatic growth in sort of office infrastructure and, um, and uh, the painting team has, even through the pandemic, it's just gone nuts, the amount of recruitment we've had to do to, to deal with demand and also the, the volume of the growth that the company's had. Yeah, I'm interested to know, I don't know about you, Eddie, about some of the maybe challenges you've had to overcome during the lockdown. Obviously, there was there must have been some shortages on supplies. Yeah. Give us a bit of a run through of like maybe the last year of some of the challenges you've had to overcome. Um, well, yeah, there's been, look, GW stopped producing models for quite some time, which again, totally understandable given that people couldn't be in the production, which is, you know, perfectly, perfectly fine. Um, it just made you know, keeping client projects on track quite difficult because obviously there might be a certain model that they require for their project or, you know, we had a shortage of Chaos Black, for example, that came about that, um, you know, uh, just made it impossible just to get good high quality undercoat, um, you know, and as a result, other companies were spawned into life, like, for example, Colorforge that now make um, spray cans and things like that. So um, there's been some serious, serious uh, sort of like difficulties. I mean, I didn't furlough anybody. So nobody from the office was furloughed. Um, all the painting team were able to work from home, which is good. Um, so that that was one sort of blessing is that we didn't have to do that. Um, and I, I felt like during a quite a difficult period of time, it's quite easy for companies to just go, oh, well, don't work. I'm going to pay you 80%, uh, 20% less and just don't, don't do anything. And like a lot of people obviously we struggle with like mental health or like difficult things and obviously work sometimes is the thing that gets gives people to focus on especially during difficult situations and um so not not furloughing anybody i thought was quite important um and in the same in the same year or in the last 18 months i put into place obviously paid for by the business i put into place counseling for every single team member in the company so they can call up to a phone number or or being that there is you can't do face-to-face contact with anyone at the moment or back then you get six free face-to-face uh, counseling sessions a year as well so they've got 24 hours to online and and telephone counseling and then six face-to-face sessions each as a as an employee or member of staff or freelance team member to the in the company i thought that was quite important yeah um me, me personally um I don't, I just done metric tons of late night car park exchanges for models. Uh, that it sounds really dodgy, like a brown paper bag with money in it or like PayPal transfers or whatever the case. But I drove all around Essex picking up models left, right and center to, to make projects keep, keep going on, go forward, not be delayed. Uh, you know, there's the funniest one incident, which truly humbled me and also shocked me in the same evening. Um, so I drove to Chelmsford, which is near Wickford, which is where the business is based. And, um, met this chap in a, in a car park for swapping a defiler because one of our projects needed a defiler. For, I think it was either for a conversion or for a, just as a model. So you can imagine the scene. I rock up to this car park. There's a car with its lights on. Um, unfortunately, I knew the guy from the Chompswood Club. Um, so I rolled a window down. Brown paper bag, obviously, with money in it for the guy or brown envelope, whatever. And um, I put, put the envelope through because it's social distance. You can't get out the car and go, how, how are you or anything, blah, blah. So I had to try it through his window. Um He's about to throw the model into the car for me. And uh, in my left peripheral vision, I see like a white shimmer. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a police car. <laughs> hello, hello, hello. What's going on here uh, then? Exactly. Uh, and I'm like, um, roll down the other window. So you can imagine the scene. My mate is looking through to me and I'm looking through to the left of this police car and there's two officers in the car. I'm like, right, so uh, what's going on here? And I'm like, it's not what you think. Uh, I can promise you it's not drugs. Like, it's like the first thing I thought about saying, it's like, it's not drugs, don't worry. Um, like, I'm exchanging uh, some, uh, I'm, I'm just grabbing some models off of someone I know, blah, blah, I explained it. And then, you know, when you look at someone, you're like, and they kind of like recognize you or something. And I was like, and I know I clocked it and he was like, do you, um, do you run Siege Studios by any chance? I went, uh, yeah. And he went, oh, okay. And then he turned to the other officer and said, look, you've got nothing to worry about, explain it to him. And then they just said, don't worry, carry on. And then just drove off. 
so it was like the most crazy thing ever like I, literally you can imagine it's like a comedy like and and to have the one of the police officers like it's commonly known in the forces and in the services that a lot of people do the game and the hobby um so kind of like siege kind of like saved me from potentially being in a very awkward situation which i thought was quite funny um but it also is super humbling that someone you know third party knew of the company and and recognize me because of this business or whatever and and to, to get me out of that kind of situation so yeah I'm, i was really trying hard not to laugh yeah. then because i didn't want to interrupt but that <laughs> sounds awesome just uh i can imagine literally your your initial panic must yeah, have been was, set in your face I was like, oh my God, what are they going to be thinking? Like, um, like what is going on here in this car park? You know, but, uh, but yeah, fortunately, it, uh, it was dealt with quite easily, <laughs> to be honest. And I bet you feel like, oh my God, I'm just digging myself an even bigger hole right now. Yeah. 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 Especially considering I'd lobbed like a, a, an envelope with Brent up with money in it into his car. It's like, if they'd, it's like they're like, why have you got an envelope full of money, like for money for the thing? But yeah, it's just, yeah. You need to funny. mix it up next time. Push a, and push a uh, briefcase across a park bench yeah. or <laughs> you need to yeah. dress up as an undercover cop. Yeah. 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 No, well that, oh James, that's awesome. Okay, so we're going to go into our main segment now. And obviously you're a phenomenal painter with, you know, like you said, a, a team of 60. You, you know, you guys and your team must be doing this on a regular basis. And I'm sure as a lot of the listeners here will be trying to get their models desperately painted for some of the huge events around the world at the moment. We thought we'd give you, we're going to put you on the spot, James. Yeah, we want to pick your brain. Perfect. So Steve and I are starting a thousand sons army. Um, mm -hmm. Now we've got the list and we've got the models. What should we do next? What's our next step? Yeah, for, for what part of it? The building, the cleaning, we, yeah, the painting? Yeah, they're literally what is it? in the boxes in front of us. Okay. What do we do? Well, first thing is decide on what colorway you want to go. You're going traditional thousand sons. You're going to be picking like a, a, a obviously you're playing thousand sons. So the rules for that faction are going to apply specifically to those models so it's not like a marine chapter that you can paint any old color and then you can use different chapter traits or things like that so um so really color choice is either go go standard uh, or just pick something a little bit different i personally love uh black legion that are part of uh sorry thousand suns that are part of the black legion that paint their armor black i think that's incredible it's really really cool they look super sinister super angry uh and super sort of menacing all in that black armor with the extra extra sort of details that they've got yeah um I would then counter that with some really, really contrasting bases. So I pick something kind of a bit etheric, maybe some purples, some pinks, some teals, maybe even greens, um, just so that you've got like etheric kind of like celestial basing, which would be quite cool. Um, just show that they come out of the warp or something. I don't know that you, if they're summoned onto the onto the table of some sort or they come yeah, out. Yeah, because like they've got a lot of warp fire on the models, haven't they? Yeah. Yeah, and you could kind of tie that into the basing if you've done that um, as well. Um, but yeah, obviously, look load them out in the most competitive loadout i'd advise always magnetizing because then if you're going to want to change weapons and things and that also is, also helps quite a lot yes it does involve painting more parts for the models uh, but then it gives you flexibility of kit and flexibility yeah. of tactical loadout it's which future proofing is quite, isn't it yeah exactly new additions and stuff but i mean we're a pair of madmen and we're going to paint them white no, that's fine so i know that white's traditionally quite a difficult color to uh, yes with. and no can you give us any advice there um don't paint white with a brush Put it on with an airbrush. There's a really good uh, desaturated white from Vallejo Air, which is called uh, White Grey. Uh, okay. I definitely recommend do that. And then you can highlight that with either model colour uh, cold white, or you can highlight it with uh, any of the GW whites that you're familiar with. But a super vibrant, bright white would be the best. Maybe even like um, White Scar might be quite good. Um, but yeah, Vallejo, not, uh, I can't remember the serial number, but if you just search Vallejo Air White Grey, uh, it's a really good desaturated white that you can then sort of highlight up quite nicely. Uh, it's perfect for doing the wings and things like on Blood Angels. That's what I use it for. It's really good with a brush. If you do need to paint it on with a brush, it goes on quite smooth. Um, but white, um, there's a bit, big stigma with it. But I think if you put any paint anything on really thinly and layer up with m many, many layers, especially white and yellows and things like that, you can always get a smooth coat, no problem. So, Okay, so first of all, from what I'm gathered then, we've got the list and you've bought the models for it, and you think, right, okay, I'm going to get all the magnetized. I think that's something we need to do, Eddie. Yeah. Um, get the magnets on the go. Um, so if I'm right by thinking, even before you start your building process, then you've already picked your colour scheme. You know what your main yeah. colour is, your highlight colours, you already know. Yeah. And do you write that recipe down? Do you? Yeah, I've got, I always recommend having a painting journal. Uh, new project, new page. 
um just Good always idea. always write down the process colors things you're doing so you can put swatches on there if you make mixes all these kind of things and then you've got like a history of your painting in a book which is really important yeah there's nothing worse than going back to an army you've already painted half of a couple of years later and you forget exactly. your method yeah i've definitely done that a lot yeah we've all been there yeah okay yeah. and then when do you how how much do you use like the color wheel with um a i lot. know I know this has been spoke about before and obviously, as you know, um, you know, I'm good mates of Andy Wardle who showed me some bits in Bob's before and he mentioned like the colour wheel. So yeah, how do you use that in terms of when you're creating these like recipes? So, so first things first, like colour theory is is very, very deep, but there's lots and lots and lots to it. There's different relationships, different uh, sort of different uh, colour patterns you can use like triarchs or there's, you've got loads and loads of different uh, things you can incorporate when it comes to selecting of a, of a color, um, color based or color theory based uh, color way that you're going to do, um, but generally speaking, there's just a really, really easy way to do it. So opposite colors that are opposite obviously complement. So for example, um, you know you've got your your primary colors obviously, so you've got blue, red, and yellow. But within those primary colors, for example, you like let's take ultramarines for example. That I'd say eighty percent of the color is blue. Uh, if you're really OG and you're going old school, then the guns would be red and the trims would be yellow, and then quillers would be yellow. So you probably got like an eighty ten ten split on that on that color triarch which is obviously red blue yellow generally speaking if the colors are opposite each other then they will complement and if you've got a color that's next to the color you've chosen then it'll be a harmonious color so it'll be a color that works in harmony with that color if you follow me um so i'd always always recommend just taking that into consideration first and foremost like for example you know um Green is a good complementary colour for red. Red is a good complementary colour for green. Uh, you know, purple is a great complementary colour for for, for for red because it's kind of near it on the colour wheel, um, vice versa. So look at a colour wheel and take it from that very rudimentary just uh, understanding of the opposites to complementary and colours next to the colour you're choosing is a harmonious colour. With that understanding, you'll at least be able to look at the colour wheel and go, right, I can see that this colour would work quite well with this one and this one's the direct complement of it because it's opposite, if that makes sense. It's a really good way to just kind of get a first glance at understanding how to choose the colors using the color wheel. And then do you kind of supplement, like, let's say you think, okay, yellow would be a, a really good complement. Is that where you can go, actually, I'm going to use gold instead? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, if you look at modern ultramarines, for example, that's the exact thing that's happened. So, you know, back in OG second edition, they used to have red gun casings and yellow trims and yellow quillers and all the eagles and stuff were yellow and all the gold essentially that is nowadays on them is, is now gold or metallic gold. So, so yeah, you can start swapping out colours like that, for example. You can make your yellows, your gold and things and things like that. And then where does like your silvers, blacks, whites and sort of greys kind of fall into this? Um... Well, the, the kind of monochromatic scale and like that, that, yeah, if you're just using greys and whites and things like that, that that's that they well, because black and white aren't theoretically a colour. Um, you know, they're, they're not really, obviously you don't see them on the colour wheel and there's a reason for that. Um, but they, they are obviously within the monochromatic scale. So um, the beauty of it is that as long as you're, as long as you're, colors that you have on there will still work in color theory you can really use them on on blacks whites grays without any real worry at all whatsoever um you know as long as you've got your complement colors complementing complementing each other or they work in harmony with each other that's that's typically quite fine so don't don't think of them as uh don't think of them specifically as oh it's got to go with a white or it's got to go with a gray or it's got to go with a black because they don't based upon color theory otherwise they'd be on the color wheel and they're not so Sorry. what you're saying is they're like a neutral colour that can or neutral shade that can be Correct. put on anything. Correct, yes. Okay, cool. That's always good to know. Okay, go on, Eddie. I do a lot of building um, of models and I've I've always found that mould lines are probably the most time consuming part yeah. of it. Um, do you have like a recommendation of how to, to best deal with them? Uh, yeah, I mean, you got the mold line removed from GW. That's quite good. Uh, I've got a, an old Stanley uh, knife that I've just never used for anything else. It's, it's it, I've, well, I've used it for many, many years, just cutting plastic and cutting things and so on and so forth. And it's obviously got a little bit blunt over the years. So, um, so I just use that as my mold line removing tool now. Uh, it's it's not sharp enough that it will damage the plastic, but it will scrape smooth uh, the mold lines that are on a model. Um, so you can either use the mold line remover from GW, which is obviously very, very good, uh, or you can, or you can then use uh, use um, just a, 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 a blunted Stanley blade or, or scalpel or knife or something, and that works perfectly fine. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, if you go a bit go a bit Rambo with a brand new knife, you can take massive chunks out of uh, models, and I don't recommend that. So a blunted blade is way better. Yeah, I've, I've personally always used the back of a Stanley knife because um, they got yeah. that nice thin point to get into some of the details. Um, but I mean, another thing that I struggle with is when we're building more complicated models, if you look at the Silent King, for example, he's a, he's an absolute beast. Would you yeah. sub-assembly that? Would you recommend people do? 
And when? Yeah. Yeah. When do you do that? Because that's the interesting thing for me is when do you subassemble? Yeah. I think um, one of the one of the key things with subassemblies is uh, if you struggle to access it for the purposes of painting, then definitely, definitely subassemble it. A classic one is obviously like a bolt gun across the Marine's chest or something like that. But if you can paint it in a single piece, I always typically recommend to do it in a single piece. That's just my personal opinion. I like painting single piece if you can access everything. If you can't, then then yeah, subassembly is the way to do it. And it's upon the building stage that where you really need to determine should I sub-assembly this or should I not uh, for the purposes of painting? If it gets in the way, then keep it separate. If it doesn't, then obviously, and you can, you've got the dexterity and the brush control to be able to paint in those gaps or those areas with it, with that, with it assembled. Then of course, you know, for the purposes of saving time, it makes sense having it built in one piece. Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, w- one thing that I've always struggled with as well is uh, when you're, if you're doing sub-assemblies and you're priming models, how do you go about making sure that you don't prime the bits you need to glue? That's a really good point. Uh, you can get some blue tack and just put blue tack on the contact points. That always works really well. And then you can pull that off. And then obviously just the contact points will be fresh plastic. That works quite well. Uh, some people use liquid, liquid mask. Um, it's a bit of a, a bit finicky, to be honest. Uh, I think just, just using, using blue tack is perfectly fine in my opinion. That, I've used it plenty of times and it works, works well. And do, and do you ever use sub-assemblies? Because I've tried this, obviously. I use a, a, the airbrush a lot to do a lot of the bulk of my work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I think I've painted this year something around 15 armies in the space of 18 months. So I'm like, just airbrush it monster. and uh, get that gets most of it done. So I've tried some sub-assemblies when I'm painting. Let's say I've got a lot of the areas can be white or yellow. And I want to do that as a different undercoat. Maybe I don't want to put it over black or I don't want to get it on the other model. Do you ever sort of use sub-assemblies for the painting colours you're going to use, if you know it will give you an easier time later on with those colours or not, or do you just chuck it all on and uh, yeah, go from there? Yeah, I mean, you can do. Uh, thing is, with an airbrush, you can put white over black and black over white quite easily, like, uh, so, or, or a bright colour over dark colour quite easily. Like, you, you, there's the airbrush allows for paint that is considered a bit finicky or a bit difficult to lay out to, to actually go on quite well. Um, so you can, but obviously if you're working a good example would be like, for example, a half or quartered pattern Marine scheme. Um, you know, it, it's like, what color do you put on first? You put, you know, the yellow, let's take Helen Griffins, for example, do you do, do you do the yellow first or the red first? And I think it just comes down to choice, but either way, you're going to have to then dive in the brush and do some parts of it that are in an alternate color. But the way that I would always approach it is pick the color, which you find hardest to layer with a brush. And that is the one that I would use with the airbrush. And then I would approach and the other color or the other colors with, uh, with, with, with a brush get the predominant majority color on first with the airbrush and if it's a more of an arduous color to put on because it doesn't layer as well or as or as doesn't go as opaque as you'd hope for it if you're using a brush then yeah i would um i'd recommend using the airbrush for that nice and then in terms of like your um basing and priming i mean i've tried to do it in different ways i just kind of use a uh, at the moment like a bit of pva some sand and then i go about painting it do you base before you like after you've built the models or do you do you do, do you leave that right into the end and and when does that happen in terms of priming as well uh yeah i, I me i'm i'm a bit old school so this is just opinionated not factual it's just the way that i do it i'll always put the basic material on the basis first before priming because then i see that prime is sealing that basic material in as well as the pva that you put onto it so i will always my general process is literally you've got your model stuck to your base i get a scalpel or a blade and i scratch the base so it gives a better contact point for the sand or, or, or material to go onto. that's a great um, tip yeah that is good advice Put, uh, put your PVA onto the base uh, and then uh, obviously do your pass through the sand or basing material, whatever it is, um, and then uh, let, let them to dry and then re-PVA with like a 50-50 water PVA, not straight neat PVA because the constriction of the fresh PVA, the second layer will then start pulling that material off the lip of the base or the rim of the base. So just do a 50-50 water and, and PVA to seal it, if that makes sense. Then I will obviously undercoat the miniatures, which then seals everything in uh, that you've put before. Um, and then, yeah, I just, uh, the, the, the model being stuck to the basing material just makes you practice your, your brush control and muscle memory in your hand when trying to be neat around the feet of the miniatures and also painting the base on the miniature around the feet. Um, so it's kind of like having a little test for yourself when you're painting your models. Uh, it may take a little bit more time to start off with as you get more precise and more accurate with the brush. But then once you've got that dexterity and muscle memory in your hand, it's really quick to do, um, you know, and then you and then the one thing that I always recommend to people is that the one commodity you don't get any more of is time. Anything that you can do that doesn't sacrifice quality, but makes you more efficient is the thing to do. 
So that's the way that I would approach it. And as for materials, sand is what I typically do, but I've got my own mix. So I've got like various different grits of sand. I've got tiny little flakes of, of, uh, of slate in there. I've got um, various different bits and bobs of different material in there. So I churned up old like modeling bricks and things like that. So loads of different things to give like a real random pass. When you put that model through the material, you get a very randomized basic material. The other thing is then to add decorations. So for example, skulls or, or little bits of debris or whatever the case may be from the from the universe that you're basing it would be at 40k infinity or whatever blah blah that's next level and we're learning a lot here different grains yeah no one thing you mentioned there actually i never understood why sometimes literally the the whole lot of pba starts to peel off one side of my base and i never knew why now you know you've explained it yeah, it's because it's too strong. Like it's a it's a it's a wood glue PVA, so it's designed to stick wood together. So when you're putting a second layer on, just loose or not loose because it's glued onto the first layer of PVA that you put on. But when you put that second layer on, it constricts because it's like a plastic. Um, and um, I think it's because it's either a polymer based glue or it's uh, it's got a, a, like a plasticky kind of content into it, and it will just constrict and pull the pull the basing material off the base. So that second coat is always always recommended do it as a 50 50 water and pva it's just like so diluted a little bit it seals everything in but doesn't constrict enough that it rips it off the base so once we got the base down what primer color should we use do you, do you go for a white one a black one a neutral tone uh is gray I, well, some good people, i don't know yeah some people go for a mid-tone like a gray uh, which is fine um but then, as I said, like if you're painting the models and you don't have an airbrush, then I'd always go with a color that's applicable. So if you want a very vibrant army, then I'd undercoat white and then paint brush paint on smoothly, obviously the color that you want on top of the white and the white will add saturation and punch to the color that you're putting above like a underneath filter. If you're using an airbrush, you can use any color you want. Like I can put yellow over black. I can put white over black. I can put, you know, uh, it, it, I always undercoat in black personally because I the colors I put on top because you're using an airbrush, you can always increase saturation of color to the desired saturation that you want by increasing the pigmentation or the mixes of colors or the colors that you use. So if you're using an airbrush, it doesn't really matter per se, which, which undercoat you use in my opinion. Uh, and obviously it's just opinionated. If you use white and you like it and use it, it's not a problem. Um, but if you use an airbrush, it doesn't really matter what you undercoat with. Chaos Black has been called Chaos Black Spray for nearly 20, 30 odd years or however long it's been. There's a reason for that. It's because it's so damn good. Um, you know, we all know how grainy the old Skull White spray and that's no longer around anymore. That's why you've got Corvus White or you've got the newer ones that have been made. Uh, and they're both really good. Um, but I just still find that because they've got such a high saturation of pigment content, because they are very bright paints, that your white paints tend to potentially have more risk of going uh, granular. Yeah. Um, whereas Cast Black, as long as you shake it well and it's not freezing outside and you can see your breath, you should be fine spraying the models in most temperatures with, with good results. And a little tip I'll give everybody is um, get yourself a cheap budget hairdryer. Uh, I'm talking a Tesco Travel One or something like that, not the Vidal Sassoon Ferraris of the hairdressing world. Um, and um, And just dry your models once you sprayed them and don't try and cover the whole model in one pass. Spray sections, dry it, spray sections, dry it. I've been seen down my garden with an extension lead and a hairdryer in, in the depths of winter sometimes to make sure I get a smooth coat on models. And the, the reason for it is because the heat fixes that pigmentation in place when it hits the model. Uh, and typically when pigment is on a model and it starts to dry, if it's air drying it will, unless it's in direct sunlight, like on a summer's day, those, those, embers of, of pigment can separate or can not go in as smooth because of the separation that the movement of the, of the of the wet paint that's on the surface of the model so if you fix it in place at the point of contact or just after you'll always have a smoother coat so let's say you did like a front pass and then you'd give it a front dry then you do a top pass and you give it a top correct dry. yeah oh nice yeah so yeah i like the idea about the black because when i've used white in the past i found it difficult to get into some areas and it's like you're ramming your brush in there to kind of get to that uh like deeper recess where there's white and obviously with the black undercoat even if you have missed it it's okay it's probably in the shadows anyway yeah um, of course so do you ever use like a um like a zenith or highlight if you did like a black undercoat i'm just thinking people without an airbrush like what are, what are some quick tips we can give them would a if you did it black as a prime and then you went over with a like a white xenophore at the top maybe from one angle and that can you just explain what a xenophore highlight is and would that even work with an air can uh so first things first so xenophore highlighting is the uh on a miniature basis is the um is the imitation of natural light hitting an object now uh again this is all stylistic and opinionated so i have to say that as a caveat to start off with me personally i always paint in a very box art style because that's what i grew up on i like solid color 
Um, the way that I'd always put it is, I think Zenithal highlighting is is very much uh, a stylistic choice. Whether you wish to do it or not, it's totally down to you. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with it and vice versa because even the style on the boxes isn't a realistic style. We don't all walk around with all of our edges going perfectly. Uh, you know, it doesn't work that way. Um, and in the same respect, if if someone was standing in natural daylight, uh, even with the sun where it is in our in our sky, you know, in real life, if you were to put your, your face on the floor and look up at the person, the undersides wouldn't be jet black or dark gray. It doesn't work that way. So even the Zenithal approach isn't hundred percent correct to how natural realistic lighting is. So that's the first thing. Um, you can do it with a spray can, so you can spray them black and then get a white, maybe a Corvex white or Corvus white, whatever it's called. Uh, and you can do like a Zenithal spray from a direction or whatever. That's fine. But the one thing that I find that a lot of people do is that they will spray that from above and not wrap it and dust it onto the lower portions uh, you know to sort of uh, dilute and not make the change between the light to dark so stark and what happens is you know you, your models will be black pretty much underneath and then there'll be light on the top which i think you that that would essentially mean that the light source to the model is a meter or two above where the model would be if that makes sense it wouldn't be a sun that's thousands or hundreds of thousands of miles away in the in the sky shining subtly on that model if that makes sense so it's basically when I was back in my bodybuilding days, me under the harshest light I could possibly find to make me look the most ripped. Yeah, I just had basically. to put that in my head, didn't you, Steve? Yeah, yeah but you. basically, yeah, that's the thing. Like a, a lot of people think that the zenithal highlighting is very natural and realistic, when in fact, um, you, you, the underside portions on a miniature shouldn't ever be black. Like you'd need to be in a cave for that to be the case. That's the closest representation to how sometimes miniatures can appear. Like you have the zenithal effect from the above, whether you've done two or three or four or five uh, colours above on top of that zenithal to put the colour onto the miniature once you've done that zenithal with the white. Um, but it's not real to the real world unless you're in a cave and the light yeah. is directly above you. Because, I mean, light um, bounces off everything, doesn't it? So you're going to have correct, light yeah. coming from underneath you as well. So, yeah, I get that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I light, light effect, lighting effects are very, very subtle. And obviously, don't get me wrong, we're talking about miniatures here. Like, the reason why it's over-exaggerated is because of the scale and the size of the miniatures and to give that instant what people determine as pop on miniatures. Um, you know, uh, it's... You know, it's to, to 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 create that 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 sort of stark vibrancy that the model will have, which is fine. Um, you know, as I said, it's a stylistic approach. I I paint in a very different style to some other people, and other people paint very different to me. Like I've all grown up on box art. I like that kind of style, um, and that's kind of what I paint. Uh, it doesn't mean I wouldn't ever do a zenithal thing. I'd probably say that the zenithal painting it is a lot quicker uh, because obviously you get that stark, sudden transition in color on the miniature. I would always just be an advocate for dusting the lower third portions and, and kind of blending with the can that, that sort of zenithal into the black or into the darker colour that you've placed um, just so that the transitional line on the model where the colour changes isn't this stark line where you have the model looking from above and it's one colour, you turn it upside down and it's black or it's dark. It's just not realistic. Um, and if you're trying to do zenithal to create realism, then by leaving it like that, you are not in fact actually making it look real. It's very cartoon-like, if that makes sense. Definitely. I mean, so, so yeah. many of us out here, including myself, are yet to make the jump to using an airbrush. I've always just been a brush painter. And yeah. I, I think that a lot of us are just a bit sort of nervous to get into airbrushing because I know there's, you know, there's a bit of a barrier to entry cost-wise sometimes. Yeah. And, um, you know, but it looks like, you know, you've convinced me today, if anything, that airbrushing is the way to go. It sounds like it really broadens your toolbox. Like, what, it does, yeah. What can you say to people like myself who want to speed up their painting? Like, how can we go about learning to use an airbrush? You're just looking for some free coaching here, Eddie, aren't hey, you? Steve, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Don't give it away. Yeah, I mean, so an airbrush is, it's a great time saver. Uh, you know, and again, going back to my, the one thing that I always say to people, which is if it doesn't mitigate quality then and it, it maximizes time efficiency then it's a no-brainer and that's what an airbrush is now that i realize there's a barrier to entry 100 you need to invest into doing into in, you know, getting a setup and using it personally i'd go mid mid tier i'd never just buy a cheap sort of chinese one off of ebay or something like that i'd always invest in a decent airbrush so you know i'm not endorsed and we don't get paid to say this but uh, Harder and Steenback are a really good manufacturer. If you like cars and you like the old analogy of German cars and how they last and all of that, the airbrushing game is very similar. The other thing I'd say is uh, like there's a very good acronym, which is the word FEAR, which is false expectations appearing real. Um, and um, and the reality is, is that 
when everybody, if, if for those that you list, for the, the drive that are listening, like when you first got in a car, I'm sure many of you bunny hopped down the road like I did. Um, but after practicing and lessons, you then drove smoothly, your gear changes were normal and, you know, you didn't jump all over the place. And an airbrush is very similar. So the trigger mechanism on an airbrush is just like a clutch on a car. Um, of course, when you first pick it up, you're going to be excited to use it. You're going to be nervous as well. You're going to put some paint in it, spray it, and you have this huge splodge that appears on the model. First things first, you didn't drive on a motorway when you first got in a car and you shouldn't be painting a miniature first when you pick up an airbrush. Get yourself a bit of cardboard, practice doing dots, lines, write your name, develop that muscle memory and control of the trigger. And that will get rid of that false expectation appearing real of making a mistake by actually learning how to control the tool that you are trying to use and master. Um, that's the one of the key things that I would definitely, definitely recommend to anybody that first picks up an airbrush. Do not pick up a miniature. And if you do want to try on a miniature, do not pick up your favorite character or your, your favorite tank or whatever. A bit of cardboard will suffice for you to learn the muscle memory and trigger control and biting point, so to speak, on the trigger where the needle is drawn back and air and paint can exit the airbrush. So what you're saying um, is I can't borrow that custom Dante to practice then? It's unfortunately not, no. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've yeah, got a don't. bit of, got a bit um, of yeah, terrain that you can do though, Eddie. Oh, yeah. Can, you can, More work for me. It's a bit of terrain. Uh, that's always a great place to start, isn't it? Because you can go. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, the terrain is so forgiving, um, but it gives you some angles and yeah. stuff to practice on. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, the like, thing is, is like it, if you want to practice on a model, then feel free to like. But I would, whenever we teach people, like in the tuition we offer, all the classes that we do, like I, I always, always say, uh, you know, five to ten to twenty minutes practicing with the airbrush on a bit of cardboard will give you more insight into its understanding and use, so that when you approach a miniature, you're not going to make the the stigmatized mistakes that a lot of people seem to think that when you get an airbrush are the direct result the first time you use it um you know um, that's what i'd always say i think it'd be great to get you back on another time james and really go into a bit more detail on how to use an airbrush or is there anywhere that you've got any resources out there for people can find out more about how to learn an airbrush properly and what sort of equipment they need yeah, 100%. Obviously, uh, you know, thank you very much for the opportunity to, to, to plug and to put some bits in here. But like we obviously teach physical classes. They're returning as of October across the UK. Uh, so Siege will be having uh, classes with with myself and the rest of the team all over the UK in 2022. Uh, and they're at loads of different venues and locations. Um, on top of that as well, we obviously have Patreon, which is an online tuition platform, which I'm sure everyone's got a Patreon, but obviously ours is designed to, to teach. Uh, and we also offer one-on-one -on -one tuition sessions with uh, myself and many other members of the team um, through sort of uh, purchased uh, time-based sort of tuition sessions on our on our web store. So there's various different areas. And look, if you, you know, I'm not here to just ram siege and what we do down people's throats, but if you, you know, there's plenty of videos on YouTube as well, but you know, if you want to learn from somebody that's always got experience in a question based environment, then, then yeah, there's, there's many avenues with us that you can do that in. I'm sure most people listen to this podcast, listen to this podcast because they want to, you know, they're time poor. They want to get the information quickly in a concise way. And coaching yeah. is the best way to do that. Learn from an expert. Like I've learned loads from just this, you know, last 50 minutes of chatting with you, James, about basing, priming, um, even thinking about, you know, Xenophil highlighting, I probably won't use it as much actually now thinking about it. Some of the things mm. you said really resonate in how to use colour theory. So it'd be great to get you back on in the future to maybe dive into some of these in a little bit more detail. So, James, do you mind if you come on each week for a little segment where we do a top tip with James? Not a problem in the slightest. Because we've got to get those 10 points back already painted, don't we? We do. We all need it. And I think there's loads we can go into. I, th I really, really think there's so many little yeah. different things we can go into. So each episode, we'll just put in a little segment with James. Uh, I'm literally putting James right on the spot here. Um, it's fine. I'm, I'm more than happy <laughs> to help. So. And obviously with all your links to your Patreon and everything else to Siege, I'll pop that all into the show notes and um, as an email so people can get those as well. Um, so before we wrap up, I think, yeah, we can go into this in a lot more detail. James, what, what have you got coming up this year? What What sort of projects you've got you've got your custom you've got your obviously your siege studios commission painting anything else that's on the horizon i mean by the way i want you here to do a lesson at factorum we'll definitely do that i'll be super up for that so let's get that let's get that organized um 
uh regarding that's coming out yeah we've got iron skull which is i know a lot of you got listeners are obviously uh, competitive gamers and that's great but obviously if you are interested in painting then iron skull is uh, the siege painting competition that happens in london every year annually in february um for this one's obviously going to be in february 26th uh, next year uh which is uh it's uh i said an international painting competition where people travel from all over uh to enter to win various different prizes including the best in show trophy which is called the iron skull um it's judged by the likes of andy wardle richard gray uh john keys and we've got a special judge coming for this year as well um you've got different members of the community that are going to be there as well at the event um and i'm going to try and convince boxy to, to to be part of it in some facet so we'll have a conversation about that steve um but um but yeah so there's iron skull and then obviously our physical classes all over the uk are returning as well so um something that that we're really keen to get back out and start doing after this horrible pandemic that we've had uh is actually see you guys and meet people and, and help you to improve your painting in a, in a one in a sort of one-on-one class format amazing well, i'm keen count yeah. count me in james where can we amazing. hear about the classes when they go up so they're just they'll, they'll be advertised through all our social media and uh typically the all the tickets will just be found on our web store which is uh currently in the process of being integrated onto our website so eventually i'll just point people to the website but for now we've got uh we've got a third party uh, ticket website that we use currently and on instagram what is your handle it's just Siege Studios. Just Siege Studios. Because I saw some sisters, I uh, think you posted up today and I was like, wow, they look good. <laughs> yeah, we put up an army photo this morning. So, so yeah. You get 20 army points for that one, for yep. painting. <laughs> That'll be good, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, one, one thing we've started doing here at our events, James, if you win Best Painted, because we want to, uh, the Factorum, which is the gaming store underneath my studio, um, so I kind of help with the rules pack and just to make sure everything's watertight from code of conduct to sportsmanship and things. But one of the things that we've got collaborated on is really rewarding the people that win uh, best painted. And the army that gets best painted gets a full size canvas with their like, you know, that sort of really classic white dwarf style, two yeah. armies coming together. Because I really wanted to make the best painted army a really cool reward to get because I appreciate that if you're going to the time and effort that you do to paint your armies, you know, you can't just keep up with the meta. You can't just buy the latest thing, get it painted. Yeah. You know, this is maybe a two year project for people. So I really wanted people to come and go, I'm going to give it the best I can with my army, but I'm going for that best painted award. And it's a full size canvas. Um, You know, it takes about two hours, two to three hours for me to set up, get all the artwork done, uh, edit, Photoshop, all the rest of it. So um, what do you think of that as a prize, by the way? That's a really good prize, like absolutely awesome prize. It's, uh, you know, even whether you win the tournament or not, getting the opportunity to have your painting rewarded in that format is is a very, very good thing. Just because uh, you put up in your hobby room, I thought. Yeah. They look incredible. They really do. Because uh, I thought I'd get your opinion, James, because obviously I'm not a painter, but I didn't know from your perspective, if you came, no, that would be a prize, prize. you would want to win. Yeah, it's a brilliant prize, you know, and that's a really, really good way of doing it. Awesome. Well, look, James, I want to just say a massive thank you for coming onto the show. Um, you know, we're going to dive in, you know, in more episodes in the future and maybe, you know, pick on some of these things. What I'd love to do in the future is go like a little top tip section. We'll pick a little area like we've kind of done today, but maybe in a little bit more detail, like maybe some edge highlighting tips, whatever it might be. We can drip those in in every uh, single episode. And that will really encourage people that are listening to the show to maybe go. Because I think after listening to you today, James, I'm really inspired to actually get my airbrush out and start painting. Um, you've actually really given me a huge amount of inspiration to get some models down and um, yeah, start painting. So I think a daily or a weekly dose of hobby inspiration from you, James, would be awesome. Yeah, well, anything I can do to help, I'd be more than happy to do. So it's not a problem in the slightest. Yeah, amazing, man. And likewise, I think I'm going to finally make the dive, try an airbrush, you know, give it a go. Get that I'll cardboard out. Do it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, James, thanks so much. Um, and we've obviously done the Instagram We've your website links. I'll put everything to as well in the show notes and you can get that over on the Vanguard Tactics website as per usual. Right, guys. Well, until next week, thank you so much, James. Thank you so much, Eddie. Thank you. Yeah, cheers for coming on, James. And we'll see you next week on the Competitive 40K Podcast. Bye.